0: Well, we're coming to uh, the conclusion this morning of our fall series on the Ten Commandments, which we've been calling the Law of Perfect Freedom. Now, if you are like me or wired the way that I am, you maybe have a tendency to think of the Law of God as being the opposite of freedom. I tend to think of freedom as the absence of laws, the absence of rules and regulations. But what's striking about this this text is that when we see the law of God through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we understand that Jesus has fulfilled these commands perfectly in our place and then credited his righteousness to our account, then something changes. These laws which stand otherwise apart from Christ in condemnation over us become in Christ and through Christ the law of perfect freedom setting our hearts free to run in the pathway of God's commandments for he has in Christ set our hearts free. We're going to read the the entirety of the 10 commandments Exodus 20 verses 1 through 17 and then afterwards we're going to flip over to Philippians chapter 4 and we'll be reading verses 10 through 13 which I think is Paul's commentary on the 10th commandment. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word beginning in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. or anything that is your neighbor's. Now turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. The Apostle Paul, writing in the Spirit, writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then finally, James chapter 1, verse 25, our theme verse for this series. James, the earthly brother of Jesus Christ, writes writes this But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed. In his doing. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. Oh Lord our God. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would speak to us through it. We pray Lord that you would give us eyes to see. And ears to hear. The voice of the Holy Spirit. Speak Lord. For we your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. This week, I heard something that really made me think. Jason Lehman wrote this poem when he was just 14 years old. He submitted it to the Dear Abby column. Some of you remember the Dear Abby column. Abigail Van Buren, who printed it in her column on February 14th, 1989. The author writes this. It was spring, but it was summer that I wanted the warm days, and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall that I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring that I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child But it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted. To be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 that I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age that I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. My life was over. And I never got what I wanted. This morning, we're going to talk about coveting and contentment. We're going to talk about why so many of us live our entire lives without ever getting what we want. Now, it's worth noting at the outset that the 10th commandment is unique because, unlike the other nine commandments, this commandment goes straight for our hearts. The other nine commandments could theoretically be reduced to outward actions, lying, stealing, killing, idol-making, and Sabbath-breaking. Those sins are sins that other people can usually see. But the tenth commandment is different. The tenth commandment is about our thoughts and our motivations and our attitudes that only God knows if we're coveting, because only God can see our hearts. It's no wonder then that the apostle Paul said that this commandment, the tenth commandment, was the commandment that changed his life forever. This commandment shook the foundations of his previously stable religious life because this commandment showed him both the depth of his sin and his desperate need for a Savior. Before he came to grips with the shocking implications of Of the 10th commandment, he thought that he was a a good person, a moral person, a a righteous person, someone who would sail through the pearly gates into heaven based on the strength of his resume, his law-keeping, his obedience to the commandments of God. The 10th commandment showed Paul and shows us that we need so much more than moral improvement. We need to be transformed from the inside out. We need forgiveness. We need grace. We need a Redeemer. We need Jesus who kept this commandment perfectly, who spent his entire life trusting and resting in the plans and purposes of God. That's where we find ourselves this morning as we wrap up this fall series on the Ten Commandments. Now, if you look at the Ten Commandments as a whole, you'll see that in many ways the First Commandment and the Tenth Commandment function as bookends to the Ten Commandments. The Apostle Paul makes this explicit in Colossians 3, verse 5, where he writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The first commandment says, put God first in your life. Have no other gods before the one true God, because if you do, the tenth commandment will be the result. You'll find contentment, peace, what the Hebrews called shalom. Not merely the absence of conflict, though certainly it involves that, but the presence of full peace through Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, covening and contentment. If you're taking notes, here's our outline. I want us to ask four big questions this morning about covening and contentment. The first big question is this, what is coveting? That's not a word that we use every day. What does it mean? What do we do if our neighbor doesn't have any manservants or maidservants? What if our neighbor doesn't have any oxen or or, or cattle or donkeys? I do have a neighbor with chickens, though to my recollection, I've never coveted them. (laughs) I've always been very content with purchasing store-bought eggs. And what about jet skis? Is it wrong to covet our neighbor's jet skis? I hope not, because I would really like some jet skis. Second question, why is coveting so damaging? Compared to some of the other sins mentioned in the Ten Commandments, stealing and lying and killing, this seems like a relatively harmless sin. If no one can even tell if we're coveting, how bad could it really be? third big question is this what is contentment all the commentators i read this week said that god is essentially in this commandment commanding contentment what is contentment can you measure contentment how do you know when you have it fourth question how do we get it how do we become content people The the Beatles taught us that money can't buy us love. Can money buy us contentment? In our culture, it seems like the answer is absolutely yes. And yet, the more we pay attention, it seems there's actually an inverse correlation between money and contentment. The most content people that I've ever met live in a tiny village in a mutt hut in a little village in Africa And the least content people live in mansions in Malibu. Why? How does coveting enslave us? How does Jesus and the gospel of his grace set us free? Let's take a closer look. First big question is this What is coveting? Ed Clowney offers this helpful definition. He writes, Covening is when we desire something other than what God has given us so that it draws us away from serving God where he's placed us. I'll read that again. Covening is when we desire something other than what God has given us so that it prevents us from serving God where he's placed us. Now, that's worth unpacking a little bit because I tend to focus on the first half of the, de- of the definition, desiring something other than what God has given me, while neglecting the second half of the definition so that it draws me away from serving God where he's placed me. Here's what I mean. In Christianity, its desire for something that we don't have is not always sinful. Sinful. If I'm hungry, it's not sinful for me to desire food. If I'm thirsty, it is not a sinful thing to desire water. If I'm tired, it is not sinful to desire that extra hour of sleep that we got last night. Those are good things, good and beautiful gifts from God, things that we should desire. As Christians, we have desires related to God. I desire to know God more fully. I desire to serve God more completely. We also have desires that are related to our family relationships. I have a desire to be a better husband. I have a desire to be a better dad. I have a desire that my kids would know Jesus more and more deeply every day. I have desires for the salvation of my friends and family members who don't yet know Jesus. These are good, healthy, godly, sanctified desires. In fact, as Christians, we believe that God speaks to us through our desires, our desires show us that we are not autonomous. Our desires show us that we are not self-sufficient. Our desires show us that there's something missing, a God-shaped hole in our hearts and our souls that only Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, can fill. Our desires are echoes of a paradise lost just as thirst points to the existence of water and food points to the existence hunger points to the existence of food so also our desire for contentment points us to the existence of a god who wants us to find our rest in him the god who satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts the problem with demonizing desire the way so many eastern religions do the way so many uh, good thinking but mistaken Christians do is that when we turn down our desires we turn down the volume of the very thing that God is using to speak to us God shouts to us in our desires he shouts to us You were made to live for so much more than this. This world can never scratch that itch. This world can never give you the wholeness that you're seeking in all of these counterfeits that you seek. Our hearts are restless for a reason, and we will not rest until we rest in God. The God who made us to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our contentment. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the King of Shalom. He is the Prince of Peace. When you start to see coveting that way, you'll start to see that coveting is about so much more than staring longingly at my neighbor's Tesla, though that is sinful and I do repent for doing that. It's about refusing to trust and rest in Jesus. It's about refusing to say, all I have needed is, his hand hath provided great is thy faithfulness lord unto me when we covet it makes us unable to serve god where he's placed us because we become so fixated on what's not that we lose sight of what is when we covet we never hurl the five smooth stones that God has given us because we're so busy complaining about the fact that God has not given us ten stones or five smoother stones or a smaller giant or a bigger king. David took those, one look at those stones. He took another look at that giant Goliath and he said, Thank you, God, for you have given me exactly what I need. You have equipped me to fight this battle in this place against this very enemy. It never would have happened if he was coveting. It only happened because he was resting and trusting on the God who slays giants. Real and metaphorical day after day after day. Second big question. If that's what coveting is, why is covening so damaging? Coveting is damaging because it damages our relationship with God. That's the first part of it. But it's also damaging because it damages our relationships with other people. Now, let's unpack that. How does damaging damage our relationship with God? Well, in James 1, verse 7, James writes, Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change in other words God is a faithful father a father who gives good gifts to his children what does it do to our relationship with God when we're not thankful for his gifts what does it do with our relationship with God when we say, well, thank you, God, for this, this house that you've given me, but I was really hoping for granite countertops. Thank you, Lord God, for this car that you've given me, but I was really hoping for a little bit of a faster car, maybe one with leather seats and you know, those heated and cooled seats. Oh, those are so nice in the summer days when the seat is so hot. Why couldn't you have given me a car like that? When we question God's providence, what we're really doing is questioning His wisdom and His love. Either God doesn't know what we need, thus being less than wise, or He does know and He doesn't care, which means that He's not loving. Is, is, is that the kind of God that you, that you see when you pray? Is that the kind of God that you see when you worship? If so, you will never have a meaningful relationship with that God. You'll always be holding him at arm's distance because you'll wonder why your life doesn't measure up to some imagined standard of other people. Covening is poisonous to our relationship with God because we begin to question all the good gifts that he's given us. So, how does covet coveting damage our relationship with other people? Well, here's James again, this time from James 4, verses 1 and 2. He writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Good question. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and you quarrel. Coveting is a relationship killer but because, because it prevents us from celebrating God's goodness to other people. God gives your friend a new job and instead of saying, oh, that is awesome, praise God, I'm so happy for you, coveting says, why did he get a good job and not me? I'm so much more talented than she is. I'm so much smarter. I'm so much more capable. Lord, it's just so unfair. God gives your friend a a, a child or a grandchild. And instead of saying, praise God for his grace, praise God for his goodness, coveting says, why don't I have a child? Why do I only have one grandchild? This person has 20 grandchildren And I have one? It's so unfair. You covet, and you cannot obtain, and so you fight, and you quarrel. Eventually, coveting becomes jealousy. Jealousy becomes bitterness. Bitterness becomes hatred. And hatred destroys any possibility of friendship with other people. It's a relationship killer. Coveting is profoundly damaging to our souls. People who covet are profoundly unhappy. They resent God. They resent other people. They can never really enjoy what God has given them because they're always comparing what God has given them with what God has given to someone else. Third big question. What then is contentment? Well, the simple answer is that contentment is the opposite of coveting. But if you want a more full definition, I'll give you one. Now, I promise I will give you this definition, and I will tell you where it came from, but only if you promise not to laugh at me. Okay? Deal? Okay. I'm going to give it to you. Here is contentment as defined by the 123 Penguins DVD, uh, which is available now in our church library, or at least it was 10 years ago when my kids were watching it as kindergartners. Here we go. According to the Penguins, contentment is being thankful for what we have and not being resentful for what we don't have. Contentment is the ability to say, God, you have given me everything that I need. And if I, if I need something that I don't have, whether it's food, clothing, shelter, uh, new clients or new patients or a vacation or a new pair of glasses, then I know that you will provide it exactly when I need it. We experience contentment when fears are stilled and strivings cease. We experience contentment when Jesus is our all and all. Contentment is the lived experience of God's love. Not exactly the one, two, three penguins, but I thought it was pretty good. Fourth question Last one, how do we get this? How do we get contentment? Self help, uh, meditation, medication, more stuff, less stuff. Can money buy contentment, or is contentment a gift from God? Here's the answer according to the Apostle Paul. Now, before I read his answer to you, I want to remind you that he wrote this while he was in prison. He experienced the secret of contentment while he was literally under house arrest facing the death penalty at the hands of the Roman government. How many of you would be content with your situation if you found yourself on death row? I would not be content. <laughs> I would be more than a little bit anxious and perhaps even more than a little bit resentful at God because of my circumstances. And yet, listen to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Beautiful. Let me just unpack that for a moment. The first thing to note here is that contentment comes when we agree with God's providence. Notice that Paul says that he has learned to be content. In any and every circumstance, plenty, hunger, abundance, need, in the prison, outside the prison, uh, ministry success, ministry failure. He writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's essentially saying and learned to say, God, you put me in prison for a reason. Here I am, shackled to this guard. I have the opportunity to share the gospel with this guy every day. And when the, shift ca- when the shift change comes and he's got to sleep, they bring in a new guy. It's amazing. And think of all the free time that I have to, I don't know, write the Bible How much time would Paul have to write the Bible if he was sailing around from church to church, planting and working? He would have no time of solitude to simply meditate on God's Word and share those meditations inspired by the Spirit that we might read them today. What a blessing God has given Paul and what a blessing God has given us through Paul. That's providence. Contentment comes when we can say, God, you are in control. You are sovereign. I trust your plan. I may not fully understand your plan. There's nothing in the scriptures that demands that we fully understand every moment what God is doing. But contentment says, I trust the God who is doing it. I trust the God who is sovereign and wise and powerful. But not only that, The second thing to note about contentment is that contentment comes when we rest in God's love. See, ultimately, contentment isn't about what we own. It's about who owns us. We can do all things through Jesus who gives us strength. In other words, we can do anything and everything that God is calling us to do with whatever resources and relationships that God supplies because we know that God loves us. And we know that God will always take care of us. Success or failure, joy or sorrow, we can rest in his love. If you are a Christian, you need to understand that you are infinitely valuable to God. And we know this because God himself paid an infinite price to forgive your sins, the blood of Jesus Christ. The Son of God who suffered and died for us in our place on the cross for his glory and our good that's how much you matter to god as christians we are totally known and totally loved what more could we ever need it's so easy to lose that perspective it's so easy to focus on what we don't have the exclusion of what we do have in Christ. God has blessed us so richly in Him. We do have God's grace. We do have God's mercy. We do have God's love. And most of us have pretty nice houses. And most of us drive pretty nice cars. And most of us have pretty good friends and pretty good families. And most of us have a pretty good church. God has been so very faithful to us. You can spend your whole life coveting, trying to get things that you don't have in order to find happiness, or you can go straight to happiness by going straight to Jesus. Paul learned that secret, and you can too. You shall not covet You shall be content and we can do all things through him who gives us strength. Amen? Let's go to God in prayer. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for all that you have given us. Lord, we thank you that we can rest in the love that we have through Jesus. Believing that All the other things that we need will be supplied to us in the right time and in the right amount. Oh, Lord God, we we are so restless. We pray that we would find our rest in you. Hear our prayer, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.